Hello, and welcome to the latest podcast from the London Institute of Banking and Finance, lifelong partners for financial education. You can learn more about us and about our qualifications at www.libf.ac.uk. Institute of Banking and Finance. Um, so my name is Gary Sutcliffe and I work in the relationship management team here. Um, delighted to be uh, given the honour of uh, welcoming you all to this first event that we're hosting in association with the Institute of Information Security Professionals and the majority of the audience are IASP members. Um, so you'll be uh, probably know some of the speakers already. I'm just going to do the boring bit first of all if I may and just kind of do the housekeeping rules. Um, I'm gathering there's a few tech-savvy people in the room, so you probably know how to put your phones on silent. Um, if you could, that'd be appreciated. Thank you. Um, secondly, we're not expecting any fire drills or anything like that tonight, so if there is a reason to leave quickly, there are stairwells at either end of the building, just the right here or past the, past the lifts where you came in. Okay. Could I ask, please, if you have any questions, and I'm sure you'll have quite a few tonight, if you could save them till the end. We've got four speakers, each going to be talking for roughly about kind of 10 or 15 minutes. And then what we'll do is we'll open it up for some questions after that. Okay? So if you could save questions at the end and you can direct them then to the relevant person. We'll have a couple of mics roving around that you can uh, use to make sure we can hear you. Okay? And when we have finished, if I could ask you please, don't rush off. You know? Stop and ask further questions. The whole um, the College of Policing, the Cyber Digital team are all here and willing to answer questions, willing to take further questions from you over a glass of wine, over a few nibbles. You know, please stay and join us and uh, enjoy the hospitality. The London Institute of Banking Finance. For those of us for you, who, sorry, who are not members, um, if I can just perhaps take a couple of minutes just to introduce who we are. Okay? We exist purely to further education in banking and financial services. Okay? That is our remit. The London Institute of Banking Finance itself was only actually formed two years ago in uh, 2016. But our heritage goes right back nearly 140 years now to 1879 when we were first established as what was then the Institute of Bankers, later become the Chartered Institute of Bankers. So you'll find, and I know we've got a few people here who work for banks, financial services companies, um, if you have a banking background, you'll be familiar with the ACIB, which was the, the qualification that people used to uh, say was the pinnacle of their career. If you didn't have ACIB, you couldn't get anywhere in, in the profession. Okay? still exists, but in a different format, because you'll see we've gone through uh, a number of iterations in our name, uh, both as financial services have widened from just banking to broader financial services, covering advice, covering mortgages, covering all sorts of things. We gained, in 2010, we gained our degree awarding powers and were the first and actually still the only professional body solely dedicated to financial services that can award our own degrees. So we have a cohort of full-time students studying both undergraduate and postgraduate degrees just at our campus just around the corner here. Okay. If I go on, we operate around the world, probably about 120 countries. We've got lots of international students, students who study our trade finance qualifications, partnerships with business schools around the world. And we have our international director, Alistair, here tonight, who will probably refer to that during his, his slot. Um, we have also... Um, approximately 30,000 young students, and these are 14 to 19-year-olds in schools and colleges around the UK, who study financial capability lessons as part of their school curriculum. Those are our qualifications. We provide the materials. They're taught in schools by the teachers, 
but they will sit our exams and they have vocational qualifications, but they still carry UCAS points, which allow them to use them towards um, university entrance. We also have, go back, we also have approximately 20,000 professionals, and these are professional students, people are working in financial services who wish to either enhance their career prospects or their personal development, who will study with us each year through a range of professional qualifications. So effectively, we have four key parts to our business. The financial capability and community outreach. We have the degree programmes at both undergraduate and postgraduate. We have the professional qualification framework for people who work within the sector. And finally, we have the research and the thought leadership that we produce as part of our remit as a professional body. Okay. I'm delighted. Pete Hahn, who uh, many of you may recognise the name, is actually with us and in the audience tonight. So if you have any questions for him, catch you at the end. Thank you, Pete. So, anyway, without further ado, I'm going to hand over now, if I may, to John Hughes from the IISP uh, to talk a little bit about why have the scheme for cyber and digital investigations. John, okay. thank you very much. Right. Thank you, Gary. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, as Gary said, my name is John Hughes. I'm a fellow of the IISP, and I was given an opportunity about 18 months ago to lead this from the uh, Institute's uh, viewpoint mainly because I had a little bit of policing uh, background and uh, knew what I was talking about in general. Um, so what I'm going to spend a few minutes on is where we've got to, and then Keith's going to follow on to explain more about the scheme itself. But first, a little bit about our institute, the IISP. Um, most of you are members, um, I gather, in this room already. So we're, the mission is to be a authoritative body for information security professionals and cybersecurity, of course. And our primary aim is to um, progress professionalism in this particular sphere. Um, that's enough. You can read what, what's on there. Um, I'll go on to the next few slides, which are far more interesting. So the culture of policing turned up one day and said, look, we want to professionalise, we want to have like an institute for cyber, um, investigating cyber crime, etc., etc., And we said, we have just the thing for you. It's a wonderful skills framework. We have lots of processes and stuff like that. But they turned around and said, no, we've developed something already. So we had a bit of an argument that lasted probably about two months, going to and from, where they were trying to justify to us that what we had wasn't actually relevant for them. And the, basically the point was, of course, is that if we're information security, that's not quite the same as investigating cybercrime and other digital cyber um, issues. So after we sorted ourselves out, we said, well, what, what do you actually want? Um, so we obviously needed skills, um, and they had already started working on a skills framework, which is different from the one that we had. They decided they wanted job families, not roles, because roles cause too many political issues in the police. Um, they wanted to have competency levels, so recognising those that were new entrants into the professional ways to those that can walk on water. We obviously needed processes, and they particularly wanted a, a strategy level, which is one that recognises a person that really works at the strategic level, not one that was, should we say, hands-on technician. So all those elements came together and we started working on a series of processes. But what 
struck us, of course, is the fact that, and that is a Bitcoin, by the way. You like the? Uh, I couldn't find any other coin that would spin around like that, but I thought it was quite interesting. And and it came to realise that if you look at cyber information security, most of what we do is looking at the threats and the risks, looking at the countermeasures to those threats and risks, and then if there's an incident, maybe a bit of investigation and stuff like that, an improving process. That's really what we do. So it's more about threat, risks, and defences. I trying to stop it beforehand. Whereas on the policing side, the law enforcement side, it is primarily the opposite. Although a lot of the skills, a lot of the knowledge is actually very similar. And that's why the skills framework was different. Because our skills framework probably had, I don't know, 10, 20% of the skills that the other side needed and vice versa. So one thing you'll hear from Keith, of course, is that fact it, it, it is two professionals, but they are the other side of the coin. They're very much aligned. So what we've been doing is we've been using the processes that we've developed over the last 10 years. So although the skills framework is different, a lot of the processes the candidates will go through or have gone through are very similar to the ones that we've been using for many years. So we design the accreditation process based on our processes. Uh, we produce all the documentation, uh, of which there's quite a few. There's about over 20 documents of various different types. And we also did the processing the candidates, i.e. the secretariat function. And that's what, what our involvement has been so far. And uh, we're about to start and kick off into next year, where we're going to be putting through a lot more candidates. And this basically is, is an overview of the, the scheme. So there are five job families, investigating, interviewer, intelligence, analyst, and forensic. And then there are four competency levels, ranging from those that have just entered the business, um, subject junior practitioners, all the way to the top two. And the, they're not really um, distinguished by levels. They are actually the equivalent rank full members. It's just that one works at the strategic level and one is more of a technical senior practitioner. And what we have now is a, a series of processes that take candidates from an application all the way through to being accredited. Now I can hand over to Keith, who will actually describe more about the scheme. Thanks, John. Evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. My name's uh, Keith Lumley. I'd just like to introduce other members of the project team, if I may. Carl Rowley, Linda Hurd, and uh, Jill Harmer. Because I may well just refer to Carl, Jill, uh, and Linda during the presentation, uh, certainly in terms of the work that's been done. Because critically, the bulk of the work that we've done in conjunction with the IISP, from the skills framework, which saw Carl harvest all of the skills from a variety of different frameworks out there, from national occupational standards through to the counter-fraud uh, frameworks, to actually produce for the first time a bespoke cyber digital investigation framework. And the reason for that is we asked a number of officers in a certain force uh, about their interest in joining the security profession, and they said that they tried, but their skill sets and their evidence didn't match. And that was really the golden nugget for us, working with John Peter uh, Amanda uh, and Marie to start thinking we really do need our own skills framework here. 
And it's a critical point because as, as far as the project is concerned, there's a key question, well, why bother create it? Why not just make your people members of the IISP or similar, um, professionals in their own right? And it's a key misconception for those outside of law enforcement that if you're in the security profession, then that means the police as well. Well, not necessarily the case. We're uh, very much so in the investigation side, which you know could lead to security outcomes, but it's more likely to lead to prosecution outcomes. And then we started to look at who else in the private sector actually prosecuted. So, law enforcement's changed. I thought that was pretty relevant with the weather that we've just had uh, uh, recently. Uh, you can see from the, uh, the state of the van there that uh, this is probably the 1960s. It's true to say policing and law enforcement has changed. That's true, but it's not the key reason why we've gone down the path that we have. Traditional crime has certainly changed. Um, the emphasis here is last night you might have had a Mercedes sat on your drive and tomorrow morning it might not be there. So it's quite obvious to you that that crime has been committed. The Mercedes has gone. Nowadays, the type of crime that we are dealing with, certainly in law enforcement, and by law enforcement, I do not just mean the police, okay? It's often 90 days plus before you actually realise that you've been a victim of crime, a cyber-enabled or dependent crime. And there is a victim every 18 seconds. And that is probably a very conservative guesstimate as to how many people have been victims of cyber-enabled or dependent crime. But it wasn't the main reason. New techniques to catch our man. Certainly the case, we had the advent of DNA in the last 20 years. Prior to that, fingerprints. Now we've got fingerprints and DNA that's embedded in cyber and digital uh, environments. Predominantly the digital environment is where we get our new DNA, the profile of a crime, the profile of a criminal, uh, and indeed the footprint or fingerprint that they will leave through attribution to devices, etc. Yep, those techniques are there, but not the only reason. The police wanted to embrace social media. It's a really good source of, uh, of evidence and it's a good way of communicating with your public. Um, if anybody's lost a huge amount of cannabis in Chelmsley Wood, if you get in touch with the police, you can come and collect it. Yes, we embrace humour as well in the police service. It's not as much as you see on the telly. Public perception has changed. This is a really important slide and a piece of information because Generation Z, Generation Z are those who are aged 16 to 20 right now, these are the people of the future, feel, 43% of them, want more focus put on cybercrime and less on real-world crime. These are the people who are going to shape industry in the future. Shape your businesses, shape the communities, that's what their expectation is going to be. And I would suggest that as customers of the finance sector, their expectation on the finance sector is going to be much changed to what it is right now. And as we know, this is the generation that knows how to use the kit. Those of us over 40 are less able, but we're a little bit wiser and know when to switch it off and when to shut up on it. That's possibly the difference. Um, stalking. In real life, it's a little bit creepy if you've got a pair of binoculars looking over the fence watching somebody at a pool party, but it's totally acceptable on uh, Facebook totally acceptable to monitor and watch. How many times do you walk up and down the street and put a little sticky label on somebody and say, I like you? We're doing it all the time on social media. People now expect us to investigate Facebook uh, harassment, etc. Um, and what they see as cyber-stalking. Some see it as quite uh, acceptable. It is all of the above. They are definitely influences in why we've got what we've got. But the main reasons 
with ease. This was what the project, the Home Office, gave to us as a project back in 2015, and it was to reduce the churn between the public and private sector. That's the churn of specialists, investigation specialists in digital and cyber-related uh, uh, offending, moving across to the private sector and leaving us less capable of investigating those really technical uh, crimes. And then secondly, to professionalise law enforcement investigation teams. And that's not just from a criminal, but also from a civil or an internal misconduct point of view. As soon as we enter an evidential chain, which we all do every day, if we are looking at internal misconduct, we're looking at potential wrongdoing, we don't know from the start whether it's going to turn out to be criminal, civil, or an internal misconduct case. And Mike, when he talks about the case uh, that he is uh, following myself, will probably be able to illustrate and emphasise that. So the project since 2016, we scoped the need for a skills framework, and this is what we've delivered. We've delivered a cyber digital career pathway skills and standards framework for cyber digital investigation. It's a professional status for those who operate in the job families of investigators, let's keep it simple, those who gather evidence. Intelligence, those who gather intelligence, no newfangled complex uh, definitions here. Forensics, when we actually capture a piece of evidence inadvertently, accidentally or deliberately, we will enter the evidential chain. And this is what brings investigation across the public and private sector together. When we investigated previously, before all the cyber digital, the police did it through the old rubber healers, uh, knocking on doors, talking to people, gathering their evidence and catching their man. Other organisations use different processes. But what brings us all together now is the digital environment. We are all looking at the same types of evidence through the same medium. And therefore, there's a need for us all to adopt the correct investigative standards and particularly forensic standards. ISO 17025 is a key one. If you're not aware of that, please ask us about it later. If you're in the criminal evidential chain, you must be compliant with that for that evidence to stand any chance of being acceptable at court. We have analysts and we have interviewers. Okay, they're the five job families. Alongside this, we've created a national register of cyber digital training excellence. This will go live from next week, 1st of April. We've been out there, we've procured an organisation who will monitor and quality assure all training around the cyber digital investigation profession to make sure that it maintains a standard that our investigators uh, need to be trained to. And that is something that you as organisations may be interested in accessing. More on that when we network later. We've undertaken a candidate assessment process with the help of John, Marie and the team, Peter uh, and Amanda, and we've put 70 people through. Not all of them passed, which is what you would expect of a credible scheme. I think around 56 have received an award of some kind, and those awards were delivered last week. Next year we aim for 350, building on that year on year. Next year will be a key year for us because at the end of um, uh, the financial year, March uh, 2019, we hope to have uh, an understanding of which organisation will host this for the long term. That's all subject to procurement procedures um, uh, that will take place probably from May, June onwards. Okay. Um, and ultimately, the award of industry standard professional status and membership of the ICDIP, the Institute of Cyber Digital Investigation Professionals. 
The ICDIP exists already as an entity. It's just not operating at this moment in time. The awards and the accreditation is underwritten at the moment by the IISP until such time as we know who the host for that institute will physically be. This is the key thing here now because, as you remember, right at the beginning, one of our objectives is to manage the churn between the public and private sector. People will leave law enforcement and will be attracted into the private sector and vice versa. What we want to try and do is to manage that process much more effectively with the private sector. The investment uh, over the last two years has been this. In terms of police organisations there, uh, around 14 um, in total with law enforcement partners. Uh, Department of Work and Pensions, Immigration Service, Counter Fraud, National Crime Agency, National Trading Standards, Gangmasters and Labour Abuse Authority, that's the modern slavery people. There are 43 police forces in England and Wales and we estimate at the moment there are around 150 public sector law enforcement organisations. We find another one every day that are undertaking investigations, but because of the cyber digital environment, we are now all using the same medium to conduct those investigations and therefore a need for uh, that standardisation and professional status. 2018-19, a list of the next bunch, uh, did I say bunch? Cohort is the connect word. Shouldn't say bunch, but cohort, especially if HMRC are in there. Environment Agency, Competition and Markets Authority, Serious Fraud Office, potentially the General Medical Council, all undertaking investigations, civil, criminal and um, internal misconduct, uh, which could lead to an evidential chain being required. We reckon 30 to 40,000 members in total, and that was a real guesstimate, but has started now to come to fruition from the research that our team have actually been undertaking in the last two months. Somebody new comes up every day, Gambling Commission, the BBC, Amazon. They're all conducting investigations, sometimes on behalf of law enforcement. So the results of this have been uh, that we have that industry standard profession for cyber digital investigation. It will be aligned to the standard for cyber security profession because we do recognise that people work in investigation teams, particularly in the police, have a security role. Just as much of those who are in a security role or a private sector organisation have a role in investigation. It's two sides of the coin that was mentioned. An objective is, is that if you are a member of the Institute, that when you give evidence at court, that that evidence is more likely to be admitted, which means basically accepted by the court with less likelihood of challenge. That's what the scheme aims to achieve. There's an opportunity for increased resilience and skill sharing across the private and public sector, not just the public sector organisations. We are keen not to leave the private sector behind on this, because if you imagine that you're going to court next week as a private sector organisation to be asked the question, are you members of the ICDIP, which we recognise as having a standard for investigation and practice, that it may be damaging to the, court, the, the type of case that you are proceeding with, civil or misconduct, even criminal. Accredited and quality assured uh, training to maintain the CPD, that's the register as I mentioned, but this is an issue at this moment in time. There is a clause within the current um, uh, framework that says professional status will be lost if uh, people move out of law enforcement. We have to maintain a standard, but that's unless, unless it's to a private sector partner. So what we're seeking to do here is identify potential private sector partners to work in partnership with us, 
who are able to support and contribute to the scheme to make sure the private sector is not left behind. What I can tell you is through the support that Gary's given us, and it's been excellent from the LIBF, um, to get us engaged with a number of large banks, I'll not say which one, um, to actually scope some of their operatives, and they have exactly the same evidence and skill sets that we would expect to see on a high-tech crime unit. Okay, so we know that the skills matrix is relevant to this industry or this side. And this is yourselves. This is what we're here for tonight, is for you to be able to talk to the team and assess with us the uh, level of interest and the networks that we may be able to access to be able to take this into the next uh, phase of work. And that phase of work, as far as the private sector investment is concerned, is 2018-19 we'll be scoping and hoping to scope with you what the potential is for the private sector being brought on board here. Then in 2019-20, to pilot with approved partners, and this is the key thing, approved partners who are willing to become contributing partners, submit candidates to us, cover the costs of that membership, support succession planning between sectors. Not to say stop taking people from one sector to the other, but support the process so that there's a lower impact of uh, detriment to those who are losing. That's subject to negotiation and discussion. But also to support continuous professional de development across those memberships. And it comes back really to, to uh, John's point here, the Bitcoin. Does anybody know what the first thing purchased with a Bitcoin was? It was a pizza. Yeah. If you went and bought that pizza now, it costs you about £7 million, apparently. That's what the value of that Bitcoin is uh, for that pizza. Useless bit of information, I was told last week. Whether you'll get £7 million for it, I don't know, but there you go. Um, but it's key, this, because we come back to why extend the ICDIP um, and align it to the security profession is because there is a major overlap. And I would say this, that information security is an outcome. That's what we want to secure. Criminal civil internal proceedings are what we want to achieve successfully. They are both dependent upon, though, a professional investigation and handling of the evidence that leads to that. Without a good investigation, how can you possibly secure something unless you know really what it was that caused it? And how do you, how do you know that that's your outcome? It may lead to, uh, um, uh, to prosecution. So at all stages now that we uh, utilise the same techniques, the same environments to investigate, it's important that we do apply it to a standard, just in the same way as we apply to the security standards that exist. So the cyber and information security professionals, alongside the cyber digital investigation professionals, undoubtedly, in our view, come from the public and private sector. And what gels them together is the fact that we are using the same processes and mediums to get to that information to achieve our respective outcomes. So I extend it, well, all of the above, but there is a common objective here for us, and that is to reduce the churn between public and private sector ad partners. That's what we're prepared and looking towards doing and scoping next year. Can we say partners, not just between the public and private sector, but partners? It's got to be on a partnership basis that we do this for it to work. And to professionalise the cyber digital investigation operatives alongside cyber security. They sit and in glove. In our high-tech crime units, we have the security advisors, just as much of the investigators. And that is our understanding and certainly our experience when we've talked to partners within banking and other sectors.
contact details we're going to be about afterwards please feel free to speak we'll pass out the cards um, and at that uh, that's my part of uh, this evening uh, finished um, what I'd like to do is I'd like to introduce Mike Andrews who's the uh, national coordinator for the trading standards e-commerce uh, investigative team not e-commerce is e -crime. it e-crime why did I say e-commerce <laughs> it's probably because we're in uh, the LIBF e-crime <laughs> team Identified very early on as one of the extended police family, don't like that phrase because we're in law enforcement together, and who himself last week accredited uh, as a full member of the ICDIP as a strategist uh, in investigation. Mike. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Keith, and um, thanks to the uh, IISP and uh, LIBF for uh, hosting this event this evening. Um, it's, it's great to come along and talk to you. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through um, a case study. Um, it's very pertinent because the case actually only concluded um, two weeks ago, um, so it is literally hot off the press. But what it does do, hopefully, is reinforce a lot of the points that Keith has made uh, around the type of work we do in law enforcement and how it does dovetail with a lot of um, private sector partners. And in this case in particular, uh, there was any number of private sector partners that we had to rely on to successfully prosecute the case um, because of where data was held, and I'll, I'll come on to that in a second. Um, so very, very briefly, I'll just explain a little bit about who we are in terms of national training standards, but then the key, uh, the key uh, point of the presentation is obviously um, Operation Dougal, uh, but then that fits into hopefully reinforcing some of the points that Keith has made um, about why CDIP. Um, so the National Training Standards e-crime team was formed um, in spring 2012 um, and it sits above um, the infrastructure that does training standards at a local level. So local authorities across England and Wales are responsible for dealing with local issues around uh, unfair trading practices. Um, but it was recognised back in 2011 that one of the challenges local training standards faced was, and, and in, it's the same in policing, was how do you deal with the problem of the internet and crime that is committed or cyber-enabled crime in, in, our, in, in, in our world, um, which obviously doesn't respect boundaries in terms of the way training standards traditionally operated. And so that was hence the, re the reason for the creation of the team. And our primary role is to investigate, prosecute and online, online consumer harm. Now that can cover anything from um, the simple buying and selling of counterfeit products through social media, which we see a lot of, right through to very, very complex, uh, multi-defendant, uh, high-value frauds, which is what I'll come on to in a second. Um, and that's essentially delivered by two teams. So we're, although we're a national team, we are effectively hosted by two local trading standard services. Um, so we've got a digital evidence team who are, uh, who are our tech experts uh, based up at North, in North Yorkshire County Council, which is where I'm from, uh, and our enforcement and investigations team based with the city of uh, York. Um, those teams cut right across the five um, job families that have been described in terms of investigator, interviewer, analyst, analyst, intelligence and forensics. We have in our teams everybody who fits right across those five job families. So that's why we were very, very keen to be involved uh, in the progression of this uh, work that the College of Policing have been leading on. So Operation Dougal and it is named after, for those who are old enough to remember the magic roundabout, um, it is named after Dougal. We've, we've got an, an Operation Zebedee ongoing at the moment, which is for a completely different issue, um, but you can see there's a theme running there. Um, this might be an issue that people in the room are familiar with. In fact, I'll be surprised if there's um, not 
uh, too many who, who are familiar with it. I won't ask anybody to put their hand up and ask who was caught because probably statistical average says that somebody was actually probably caught by one of these scams um, just because of the volume of consumers that were actually affected. Um, but it was um, a real problem back in um, around about 2013, 2014. Um, some fairly, I suppose you could call them entrepreneurial um, individuals decided to set up businesses that would um, give the look and feel of applying for official government services online. That was everything from passports to driving licences, MOTs and even fishing rod licences. Um, there's nothing inherently wrong or illegal with providing a service that assists you with ap applying for a government or official document. I'm sure you're all familiar with the fact you can go into the post office, pay them a few quid, and they'll check your passport application before you send it off. Um, but the key thing with these um, individuals who are running these frauds was that they were trying to give the appearance that they were, in fact, the official government website. So the official passport office, the official um, HMRC website for completing a tax return, um, or any number of other um, official government services. Um, so they used designs and layouts on their websites that made them look and feel exactly like the um, real service. And I'll, I've got a couple of screenshots that I'll show you in a second. Um, they would use very similar looking logos um, and they wouldn't make it clear that the fact that they were actually an independent party of uh, government and there was additional charges and fees applicable. So, for example, um, I can't remember what the current fee for a passport application is, but around the time this scam was running, it was about £80.00 these companies would charge £80, the consumer would think that they'd pay the £80 for the passport, but actually they'd just paid effectively a service fee to use the website and were still left then having to pay the £80 for the passport at the end of it. And they would often use things like um, DVLA and Gov in the URL as well, again to add to trying to make it look official to the consumer. But the key thing that made this so successful was the fact that they paid, uh, and paid quite handsomely, to appear at the top of search engine results. Um, so if you look at this search, which was done back in um, April of 2014, um, this was a search for renewing your car tax disc. Um, at the very, very top, which is an advert, which I'm sure most people in this room are familiar with, um, but actually that took you to one of the um, fraudulent websites. But cons most consumers can't distinguish between what is an advert and what is an official, uh, uh, an organic search result, and they would automatically click on the top one, um, thinking it's the official site. Uh, and you can see in there they've used direct-gov.uk to make it appear official. Most sites did display disclaimers on them to say that we aren't the official government service, but it was usually in very, very small print or hidden away somewhere on the site that you couldn't see it. Um, but to them, that was a way of saying that um, they weren't doing anything wrong because we, because we had a, a message on the screen and if consumers didn't bother to read it, it's their own fault. Um, but I'll show you in a second in the screenshot, um, it wasn't quite so straightforward as that. If you clicked on that link in that uh, previous Google search, this is the website you were taken to. Um, at the time, um, direct.gov.uk was the official um, online government portal. It's changed now, but this was the one that was used back in 2014. That was the uh, fraudulent website. That was the official website at the time. So you can quite clearly see the de uh, deliberate attempt to make it look very, very similar. Uh, and when I talk about disclaimers, it probably won't be able to see it very well on these screens, uh, but in the top right-hand corner of the screen there, it says not affiliated or connected with DVLA or gov.uk. So that was their attempt at a disclaimer. But actually, if you look at the official site, 
it's made to look very similar to the DVLA, DVLA logo. Um, so quite clever, um, but very, very successful fraud. Um, so, and this is where um, some of the crossover into the private sector comes. Um, how are we going to tackle this problem? Um, well, first and foremost, obviously, looking at the search engines was going to be a key uh, way of disrupting this activity um, and uh, trying to get these adverts removed, but also looking at the companies that were involved in the supply chain, because as we identified, it's quite a complex supply chain to actually get these adverts listed on Google. Um, you can use independent third-party companies that will assist you with that. So how do we go about working with them and getting evidence that they may hold? And that's obviously a key part in relation to the public and private sector partnership in dealing with this type of criminality. Um, we then also did some intelligence development work to try and identify who these people were and where they were, uh, and then commenced, some, uh, commenced our investigation. So we started out working with the Government Digital Service, because they're responsible for all things online in terms of government, um, and with them we had conversations with Google and Bing to try and get these adverts disrupted. Um, initially they weren't particularly cooperative with that, um, but eventually we reached a point where we could identify these um, misleading adverts and get them removed, um, which had a significant impact, obviously, on the success of the fraud, but it didn't solve the problem. So we had to do some intelligence development to look at um, the scale of the problem and how we were going to tackle it from a, an investigative um, standpoint. Um, so we looked at complaint analysis from Citizens Advice, which is where people complain to if they're going to complain to trading standards. Um, we looked at information reported through from Transport for London in terms of people who would use one of these sites to pay the congestion charge uh, and identified that there was somewhere in the region of about a million pounds worth of consumer loss, so we thought at the time. As these investigations have progressed, uh, we've actually identified over 40 million pounds worth. Um, a significant proportion of the complaints related to one particular company, so that's where we focused our uh, efforts so we formally started the investigation back in April 2014 uh, and that led to us executing uh, entry warrants at four premises in the uh, southeast of England uh, in uh, June 2014. Uh, we then executed some further warrants later in the year in relation to some ongoing um, offending but ultimately um, we identified and charged nine uh, defendants in the case. It was a very, very complex investigation, a huge volume of uh, material uh, but importantly, there was significant reliance on private sector to either facilitate access to that material or provide us copies of the material. Um, so we had um, independent uh, cloud hosting companies that were hosting business records for the company. Uh, we had any number of web host companies that were hosting the hundreds and hundreds of websites that the company was operating. Um, and of course, large volumes of financial transactions uh, from payment service providers uh, and uh, banking institutions. Um, the defendants in the cases were very, very litigious, um, which meant that the case was uh, protracted over a number of years, and as I said, it just completed last uh, uh, two weeks ago. There was a huge volume of digital material in this case, and that's, again, the point that Keith's um, picked up on in his uh, part of the presentation. Um, we're now seeing investigations where the vast majority of the material in the case is, is digital in nature. And whether that's information we've gathered lawfully through um, seizing material or material that's provided by private sector partners. Um, ultimately, to cut a very long story short, we ended up with two uh, Crown Court trials, uh, one which took place in July 
of last year and uh, the second trial, which concluded two weeks ago. Uh, and we ended up with five defendants uh, ultimately convicted uh, and one defendant who um, pleaded guilty um, before the trials. Um, so six defendants in total um, and some quite handsome prison sentences you can see there because of the scale of the offending. Um, the total fraud was va valued at £40.4 million, pounds, um, so quite a significant. Um, conservatively, um, it affected over 250,000 consumers. Um, that was this one uh, company and one set of websites. Um, but in reality, we, we think it probably affected uh, over a million consumers. Um, it was a very, very traditional high-volume, low-value fraud. So most consumers lost a relatively small sum of money, but there was hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of consumers affected. Um, we're now into following up on the criminal proceedings with Proceeds of Crime Act uh, proceedings uh, where we're seeking to have assets... Well, assets are restrained, uh, but we're seeking to have them liquidated uh, and the money released. So... Why does this fit into CDIP and why do we see this, uh, this type of investigation as being, uh, as being critical um, in terms of professionalising the, uh, the career pathways of our staff? Um, as I said at the beginning, this investigation um, used staff from across all five job families. Um, so that's really, really key to us and it shows that the, the College of Policing have identified the key components of these types of investigations. As Keith mentioned, um, Churn into the private sector is, is a real problem within law enforcement and during the course of this investigation we actually lost three analysts, two of which went to um, the private sector. So you can imagine during an investigation of that scale that does cause us some significant issues. Um, what it does allow us to do is it meets a need to provide clear career progression in our team. We've modelled our own internal career progression on around the work that the College of Policing are now doing so that analysts coming in at a very junior level now have a very, very clear pathway through to um, becoming a, um, I was going to say subject matter expert, it's no longer that term now, is it? Senior practitioner. The um, training, um, the, um, the National Register for Cyber Digital Training Excellence, did I get that right? Excellent. Um, that now provides a clear framework for staff. Um, we have had tremendous problems in the past in terms of bringing staff in, staff in and developing them. Very, very hit and miss in terms of identifying courses that might be appropriate for them. So this uh, training register is um, going to be a very, very useful tool for us going forward in terms of developing staff. Um, the knowledge sharing and interchange allows us to build capacity to share staff, knowledge and capacity between um, invest between. Um, uh, organisations and in particular with the private sector as we move forward and that's the key point really to, to, to sort of conclude the presentation on this investigation we couldn't have done without the support of the private sector and the information and ultimately evidence that was provided but as Keith said in his presentation that forms a very very key component in what ultimately becomes a criminal prosecution so it's ever more important now that that information gathered, whether it is gathered by the private sector or whether it's gathered uh, lawfully through um, seizing of evidence, it must be done in a professional and appropriate manner. And we see that the CDIP is a key component part of that. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Mike. Excellent.
Right. Okay. So, uh, well, first of all, I really want to take this opportunity to commend the IISP on, a, on the amazing work that you've been doing here and the, the model that you've, you've built here, uh, which is fantastic. And I guess it, it wouldn't be wrong for me as an international director, so I'm always looking for international opportunities. And one of the things that the UK is held in very high regard is, is our education and our ability to put together professional programmes and really to be ahead of the curve. And I think what, what you've demonstrated tonight in terms of all the kind of processes that you've gone through to, to build this framework and all the kind of elements that, that lie in behind that, I'm absolutely convinced will not only be of great benefit here in the UK and really have a lasting impact, but also I believe will be of great interest you know, in many, many countries around the world. So I think that's a really... Uh, interesting and you know an amazing opportunity. Um, and let me just kind of build on that a little bit in terms of Gary and his opening remarks talked a little bit about the history of the London Institute of Banking and Finance. So we're very proud of the fact that although we've changed our name four times, whatever it is, but we've still been going since 1879, uh, so one of the oldest institutes in the world. But, but in terms of our outreach, if you like, we've, we're involved in setting up uh, essentially around 40... 40 other institutes around the world across you know, many parts of what are essentially the Commonwealth today, but other, other countries as well that we've supported. Um, and what's nice for us is that the journey continues. So at the moment, um, along with a number of colleagues uh, at the London Institute, we're involved in a very big project where we're working with the government in the UAE to set up a, a new academy there in, uh, all around there, um, have a you know, massive requirement in terms of looking to diversify their economy, moving away from all their reliance on the oil and gas revenues and into more of a diversified service-based economy. So developing a knowledge hub, developing a, a financial centre and, and the, uh, the education and academy that goes with that is seen as very, very important. And it's, for us, it's very exciting that they see us, even though we're relatively small, but because of our knowledge, our experience, our know-how as an attractive partner. So this, this is just an example of, of, of something that we're involved in. And another perhaps example I can build on is that, and hopefully the, especially I think it would be a really interesting uh, forum for you to present maybe to a wider international audience, but in next year we are hosting uh, a big event here in London which is called a World Conference of Banking Institutes at the Guild Hall. Uh, we're expecting quite a a big, uh, diverse uh, audience with many international uh, representatives. And our theme of the conference, if you like, is growth and sustainability in the age of disruption. So I think we all recognise that digital uh, you know, uh, and cyber are here to stay. They affect every part of our lives in so many ways. And let me perhaps just give you a little example uh, of how plausible cyber and the kind of threats that we face. So on my business opportunity list but a few months ago one of the top three was an opportunity that come in from another partner to deliver training for a hundred individuals from a Chinese organization that wanted to send over a hundred people uh, in this newly formed entity perhaps there were a few warning flags coming in there who wanted to come to London and uh, set them up you know and run through a week's training in groups of 15 and it all sounded like they'd done a bit of research sounded quite interesting so anyway we we did a bit of work we supported the our associate put together some proposals and then it kind of there was a bit of a kind of back and forth and eventually they said no 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 we're okay with this now but you need to come out to china to sign the contract 
and then we can move forward with the transaction. And then thankfully, you know, it was really mainly through our partner, uh, they discovered that actually there was this uh, uh, Chinese fraud going on where essentially what they were trying to do was encourage companies like ourselves or our partner to go out there, um, pay, stay in a probably overpriced hotel and then pay for a notary, lots of money for them to witness this and then to discover actually at the end of it there was no real business there at all. So it's, it's very interesting how... Uh, the world we live in today, the people are getting, or organisations are getting better and better at making it plausible, making you want to believe that these are real opportunities or things that you should be signing up for. Um, now, the other thing I wanted to talk about um, was uh, in terms of our kind of um, journey, if you like, in terms of London Institute and Banking and Finance, is that the uh, if we look at our industry, um, cyber you know, risk is a massive issue, but also the whole area of digital transformation is changing the landscape, the business model, the way uh, the banks uh, operate, the skills that they have. And in fact, um, in a way, it was good timing for me, but I, this afternoon I was actually at a kind of round table which was chaired by the next year's uh, Lord Mayor with representatives across the city looking at this whole topic of digital and cyber skills. And there were quite, uh, you know, diverse opinions in the room, but I think what we, were, what we were able to agree on was that there were four areas that really need attention. Okay, and the first one was the skills gap. Okay, so um, there's a recognition that because, uh, you know, things are moving at such a pace, um, you know, particularly in these, in these areas of uh, the digital skills, be it um, some of the technical skills, but also some of the soft skills that go with that, that, um, you know, both, uh, dare I say it, the young, younger generation, but also at, some people our age as well, are, are finding this a very difficult challenge. So there's a number of dimensions to that in terms of, first and foremost, is identifying what these skill gaps are and being very clear about that. And um, dare I say it, because digital is such a broad topic, you have to look at it from a lens. So the lens we wanted to look at was from perspective of banking and finance. And then there is secondly a responsibility in terms of the journey into work. So young people today are being told that, that you know you don't have jobs for life anymore. Careers, that doesn't really mean anything anymore because things are going to keep changing at such a fast pace. But we... Uh, from an education perspective, have a responsibility there to support you know, young people. And we're, one of the things we're very excited about here at the London Institute of Banking and Finance is around apprenticeships. So there's a lot of uh, support from the government around this. And in particular, if we look at digital and cyber skills, there is a big need to develop uh, some apprenticeships that relate to these skills. So, and for that to happen requires good kind of cooperation amongst the employers, amongst key organisations such as yourself. So again, I think this is a really interesting opportunity for us to look to collaborate. And then the third aspect here was around culture. So in essence, the challenge here is that, particularly if we look at banking and finance, the reality and the hard reality that a lot of the big employers are looking at is that their workforce of the future is going to look and be very different to the one that they have today and it could change quite quickly. So the, the challenge there is really around being responsible to their existing employees, helping them, supporting them through what, can be, what will be quite a difficult transition because a lot of the skills, a lot of the roles that we see today and we can see that for example obviously in things like branch banking but, but there are a number of other areas that cut across the whole sector where a lot of those roles may well no longer be required 
in a, in a space of a matter of a few years. So how can we support them in terms of that aspect into, uh, and, and be, be able to do it in a responsible manner? And then the fourth aspect really was leadership. So again, there was a recognition that there's a responsibility there for... Um, for people, you know, who are at certain levels within the organisation, to to recognise, to wake up to these issues and realise that there are, you know, in the in the kind of stakeholder model that we want to support, that they need to really be showing good leadership and showing examples of how you can support people throughout, their, you know, their working lives and enable them to uh, still feel that they have opportunities and will be supported. So, for us, uh, this is a really uh, big moment. It's a very challenging moment. And in fact, our chief executive was talking to one of the very senior people in the banks who said to him along the lines of, you know, the challenge for you is to maintain your relevance in this new world. So I guess, you know, it is, we're all, uh, you know, waking up to some, you know, a changing work environment and the things that we're doing with that. But I think uh, what I take as very encouraging from this evening and from the work that's going on here is that you know, this, this is a very positive development in terms of identifying the, the, the need for a more coordinated approach for, and building, you know, again, career pathways, job families and examples in a way, a model that we can use in, in other areas where we're looking at these, uh, these new skills and new challenges. So I, I think that was really about as much as I wanted to say just in terms of where we are uh, at this time in the London Institute of Banking. Again, I wanted to, to thank... Uh, the, or commend the IISP on all the fantastic work. I think we were now going to move into some uh, questions and answers because I'm sure you've got lots of questions about the, the new framework. So I was going to hand over back to Gary for that. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Um, OK, so we've got Keith, but we've also got a number of other members of the Cyber Digital Investigation Careers Pathway Project here to answer any questions you might have. We've got a couple of microphones. If anyone has a question, please put your hand up and we'll bring a mic to you. First question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mike Humphrey, I'm Head of Security at the National Crime Agency, but I'm also a Fellow of the Institute. One of the things that I was listening to here is that where you talk about a synergy between security and investigations, um, I know from our side and probably from other, we would say, professional investigators, that there is a, not a blurring, but a blending of security knowledge and investigations. So whereas you've described the framework for the investigators and there is a framework for security, do you see a position where people can probably do a bit of a pick and mix in relation to evidencing their skills so they can actually, to some extent, move from one side to the other um, to show a wider sort of skill capability, that they're not just purely investigators, they also understand the security bit and the security bit understand the needs of the investigators? Absolutely is the answer to that. If you look at the four Ps, prevent, pursue, protect and prepare which are the four Ps that are used as part of not only investigation but protecting communities, quite clearly there on the teams and the structures within law enforcement, whether it... And when I say law enforcement, I don't just mean the police. I mean all law enforcement, all 180 organisations will have an element of security working alongside an investigation team. And clearly what we've seen is that by mapping a skills framework for investigation job families 
alongside an existing security professional, you could have members of the same team on either side of that fence registering with their respective uh, professions that uh, they are accredited uh, to a level of competency that allows them to perform and be understood to be professionals in that uh, role. And I'm trying very difficult, not, hard not to say subject matter experts. We don't like that word. Hi there, Mel Turner from PT. Um, just um, interesting, we had one entry on there for your group that are going in for training, this um, special constabulary. Yes. So the dynamic of those people, are they special constabulary that um, are basically just being trained up or are they people that are cherry-picked from industry that are now doing special constabulary? All right. So I've not mic'd up and trying my best to project. Uh, it's actually, it's both. Uh, so if you look at the NCA, the NCA have specials uh, where they uh, aren't the same as a special that you would see from films from years ago or in a, in a uniform walking the streets next to a police officer, next to a uh, police community support officer. So if you are a special within a law enforcement environment in, not, in a non-traditional special, it's unfortunately the use of the same word to describe two different things, then so long as they're working in a cyber and digital environment, then they would be eligible for the scheme. Uh, alternatively, if you are a traditional special where you are employed in another way, and there may even be some in the room, who give some of your personal time to a police organisation a few hours a week or a month where you turn up in uniform and you perform the duties of a constable. That's, that's the traditional version of a special. Now, all of those people have a day job and skills and a skill set. So if they're contributing some of that day job towards law enforcement then there's no reason why they couldn't be part of the scheme as well. And to that end, uh, down in Southampton, they're actually our project flagship for the specials and volunteers, because to bolt on an extra bit is the volunteers, because you don't actually need volunteer powers. You can come along as a community member and volunteer to your local police organisation and bring some special skills with you. So whereas I ran Derbyshire's cybercrime team from 2012 and de developed our response to cyber and digital investigation, uh, if I had gaps of knowledge and expertise in that team, maybe around programming or understanding system logs, well then if I had a volunteer who had that expertise, then they don't need to come in every, every week and give me a couple of hours. What I need from that volunteer is when I have an, in an incident that they're the other end of the phone for advice, that they can tell us what we need to do there and then to preserve the evidence, signpost me to the right expert or the right service. Um, so around specials and volunteers, uh, either definition is fine with us, so long as they're engaged in that cyber and digital world and equally that extra step on with the volunteers. Oh, thank Does you. That, that yeah, answer? absolutely. Thank you. We do actually have one guy that comes across from Holland to assist one force. He just likes it, just loves it, loves the investigation. He is a special constable. Mm. And by default, subject to the scoping exercise, well, the, the extended pilot exercise with Hampshire next year, providing that that works as we hope it will, the partnership uh, is already made with those in private industry who are special constables. It doesn't necessarily mean that the organisation has to be a partner, but they as individuals will be. But what we really do need the private sector, anybody who's in the evidential chain, okay, to be part of the scheme. When we used to conduct fraud investigations years ago, when somebody pinched a cheque out the back of the chequebook and nobody noticed because the stubs, that was dead easy. Yeah, I've noticed there's a cheque missing. I'd hand it to Carl as the detective. That's the evidence passed on. Now we're having to remove that from computers and other systems, okay, and if it's not done correctly, that evidential chain is gone.
it's lost. Yeah, just to give you a feel of some of the work that's out there, Derbyshire within the last few weeks ran an open evening by the cybercrime team, ran an evening for all the specials and volunteers in the organisation to come along, find out what that team did, have a two-way networking conversation around the skills those people had so the organisation could harness those skills and better put those people to work. Uh, so that kind of thing is happening across the organisations so that they can better use the skills they've already got uh, to protect the communities. Yeah. Anybody else have a question? Uh, <coughs> sorry, it's George Wilcock. I'm, I'm from the IISP and I'm from RBS. <coughs> um, you went through the investigator intelligence forensic side of it, but you didn't go through the other side of it, starting from the strategists and going down. Is there a very simple explanation about what the differences are um, on those categories? When Carl and I sat down last year and said, how do we make sense of these 750 skills that we found? Um, we thought this has got to be relevant to the environment of investigation. And quite clearly, when you get into technical um, uh, investigations, there are those hands-on practitioners the people who know how to take a hard drive to pieces, who love taking hard drives to pieces to extract evidence, chip off and all of that. But then there are those who are the, the leaders, if you like, of those units in which those people are based. So we recognised very early on that we needed to have a skill set for the strategist policymaker that was distinguishable from those who are the, and I'm not going to say subject matter experts, because we're not allowed to, <laughs> because it puts a crosshair on the forehead in, the, in court, you know. Um, but we had to distinguish a skill set for practitioners from those who are strategists. Do you want to break it down further, Carl? So your strategist would set the strategic direction for an organisation and its approach to cyber and digital investigations, or equally, they might set the strategic direction for one particular um, uh, incident. So we've had one described today. You've seen a case study. So there'd be no no reason why someone with those kind of skills couldn't come to the project, demonstrate the skills and receive membership at the appropriate level, having de demonstrated their strategical skills. Now there is no requirement for that person to have come up through the practical side of it, to have been a junior, to have been a practitioner and the senior practitioner in order to make strategist. Um, we're not expecting that uh, everybody has to take that progression that you, uh, certainly within law enforcement, you may be a strategist in another department dealing with illicit images of children or fraud or public order and, and our world being such as it is, later you're now running a cybercrime unit uh, so you hit the ground running and you're looking to demonstrate your professionalism and be able to go to court in a credible and professional way uh, underpinned by an accreditation that says that actually you've been measured and you have attained your membership, having produced the evidence necessary. The, the full membership, which is for the strategist and senior practitioner, two different skill sets, but recognition of the same level of status, it requires them to submit two pieces of evidence against 14 skills. Some of those skills are essentials. They must submit evidence against those skills that are essential in their job family. Having done that, and they are assessed by their peers who sit at that same level in that same job family, for full membership, they then have to submit to an interview. And that interview was, and, and the process was actually monitored and managed by Marie, who sat at the back there, along with John and Peter during the pilot phase between September and November of this year. And I think it's fair to say it was fairly robust. Yeah, there's one or two people went out of that scene. That was harder than the promotion interview. <laughs> 
that one, can you stop it? But it has to have integrity. People did fail. We had then had an accreditation committee that then had to ratify the decision of the assessors. Okay, so it mirrors, in effect, the integrity that the IISP bring to their assessment process. We don't want to be handing out badges. It's not about that. Just to give you a flavour of what the skills say, now, there's a menu of about 150 skills. Now, clearly, we don't expect any one person to be providing evidence against all those 150. So what Keith and I have done is mapped those 150 at the various levels across the five job families. So we've got five job families, and we've got four possible levels, from a junior, a practitioner, a senior, and a strategist. So there's 20 individual slots in that matrix. So we've looked at each job family for each level against the skill and decided whether it's relevant to that skill or not. And we've decided whether it's a core skill or an essential skill. So what that means is that each individual applicant will get their own PDF of a list of skills. At the top of it are the essential ones, which they absolutely have to hit in order to be successful in their application. We're asking for 14 skills from a menu of somewhere between 40 and 50 per PDF. It's an average of around about four or five essential for each, uh, each level. Uh, so if you've got four essential, that means that you then can choose any 10 of the remaining 30 or so core skills that fit your particular area of business under that broad job friendly. And that's why we've stayed away from roles. There was no need to drill down into roles because we gave you such a wide menu uh, of core skills in which to choose from. So if I give you an example of what one might be, um, if we were talking about legislation, then we would say that at the lowest level, at a junior level, someone brand new to profession, all we would expect is that they know, and that's the key word there, and anyone who's familiar with Bloom's and Bloom's taxonomy will recognise some of these words uh, because they have a particular meaning, is that they know that the legislation exists. And that is it at that very junior level. At the practitioner level, the language changes from no to demonstrates. So not only do they know it exists, they're actually having to demonstrate it, they're having to put it into practice and prosecute cases around the relevant legislation, whether that's the Computer Misuse Act, with cognizance to uh, data protection or RIPA or CPIA. Uh, so you've got knowing, the demonstrating, and then your senior practitioner is applying the information around the legislation and then moving through the Bloom's taxonomy. So they're the person in the office that when there's a change in ripper to dripper, which governs what the police do in a covert way around investigations, how we handle telephone communications data, that there's one person in the room, and it's not rank-based, uh, that people will gravitate towards and look for a solution to something new. Uh, perhaps when the iPhone 10 comes out and all the historic kit suddenly doesn't open it, well, what do we do? How do we find a local solution to that before the software companies and the tech companies catch up with a solution? That one person in the room is usually the senior. These are the extra skills. So that's where the apply comes in. Now, the strategist isn't... We're not asking that they know. We're not asking that they demonstrate. We're not asking that they apply. They're about managing and directing. So they're managing and directing the processes that the practitioners are doing each day and setting the direction for that either investigation or that organisation. Okay. The, the further step that we then took was that anybody who didn't succeed at, uh, in their application for the level is that we identified which of the skills they were deficient in, in terms of evidence and Carl and I had mapped those skills against the training that is available out there 
and the organisations who will form part of the National Register of Cyber Digital Training Excellence. Thanks, Home Office. Uh, <laughs> um, so that as soon as that individual is given the news, well, I'm sorry, but you didn't get your full membership, but you have got, you have got uh, associates, and here you are, this is your skills gap analysis, and these courses here are the ones that you can go on that will fill your knowledge gaps. We will then need you just to show and demonstrate and apply. That's the work that we've done, not only to design a skills matrix, but to design a solution for those who have got skills and training gaps. And as I said earlier on, we've done an exercise with around 15 members of an intelligence team and an investigation team in a bank, and those skill sets are applicable in their environment, very, very much so. And we would want to carry on and introduce this scheme to that um, that If we were to switch that on then those people will be capable of applying tomorrow and we very likely have been successful in attaining industry mem institute membership as if they were in law enforcement. It maps over completely. Probably got time for one more question, I guess. Thanks. Uh, Andy Larin, I'm with KPMG and um, I probably work on the cybersecurity side of the coin, uh, but what you described sounds really interesting and potentially interesting for our forensics teams. So I'm wondering if we as KPMG or just consultancies and advisories are approaching you about the CDIP already. Um, is there any partnership in that space? Not yet. Happy to talk to you. Okay. Absolutely. The thing is, the bottom line is, if you switch on a computer or another device in order to identify whether something is taking place, you are entering an evidential chain. Simples. And at the point where you do that, you do not know until you've done quite some thorough research, you don't know whether you're entering into a civil case, a misconduct case, or a criminal case. And you know it's from the very first switch on of that device that if the integrity of the, of the chain of evidence is lost, it will get thrown out at court. It's as simple as. So you guys, um, well... I dread to think, actually, how many private sector organisations there are out there on top of the public sector enforcement agencies that we've identified. And we do know that public sector investigation teams outsource to private sector companies who conduct some of those investigations for them. So it's going to be critical that they are part of um, the profession to maintain the integrity of their evidence. So, yes, the answer, uh, a very long answer to a very... <laughs> short question just to give a quick call back to Keith's presentation that's why we're here today uh, is to tell you what we're doing make you a bit better informed uh, and you'll recall there was a slide there that talked about scoping for 2018-19 so if people are interested we'll be networking afterwards enjoy the wine enjoy the canopies come and talk to us let's have the cards we'll give you our business cards and we can talk to you about coming on board in this coming financial year where we'll talk you through what's required uh, give you uh, more access to the skills and standards, more access to the definitions of what is an investigator, what is a forensic person, uh, and look to work towards actually turning people on ready for institute membership, start of uh, 1920. This time last year we had a blank piece of paper uh, and a guy with a, a Scouse accent who's not here tonight, the project manager saying, do you think you could, I ain't got a very good Scouse accent, do you think we could do this in July? We said, which July? This July. And it wasn't one of the deliverables to deliver this, but we've delivered it, and we know it works. But it's been rather like Carl and I always describe this as laying the tracks out in front of us, but we're just not quite sure which way they're going to go. So we're building the scheme. We've built the scheme with, uh, certainly with public sector partners, and we, we're more than confident to extend it in the numbers that you've seen. 
we're now ready to start laying tracks with the private sector and see where it takes us. Thanks, guys. Keep that. Sorry, one final question for me then, Keith. What was the call to action for tonight for the people who are here tonight if they want to get involved with the project? It's as simple as meet with, speak with us afterwards. We've got plenty of business cards. You can contact us uh, on the project team. Um, it may be dependent on, on the level of interest that we host some other further event to discuss a workshop to discuss how to start constructing and taking things forward. What would a partnership look like? What would the contributions be from the private sector? Could the private sector mirror the project in order to work alongside us? Because guess what? This is the project team. The four of us here. That's it. Okay? There aren't many more of us. Engagement. You know, you'll have some worries. Well, tell us about them. What are they? You know, you're worried about intellectual property rights. Uh, what about the evidence that my staff write? Uh, does it, is it anonymised? Uh, how will that affect my business? You know, what if they give something away in a particular technique that we, you know, all of these kind of things. How long does it take? What's the financial investment? Is it going to cost me anything? If you're interested, come and talk to us. We can put another event on and we can gather before your questions. We can answer those and then we can take through anything that comes up from that uh, and reinsure and engage. Certainly if you look at an internal misconduct case that goes wrong, it costs an organisation thousands, potentially for the fact that the process by which that inv investigation took place wasn't done right. If it's done right, it could well save a lot of money to organisations and reputation as well. Okay. Thank you, guys. Can I ask everybody to just perhaps show our appreciation for all the speakers tonight? Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find out more information about attending our talks and events at www.libf.ac.uk forward slash events. If you want to get involved or have any feedback, please contact us at podcast at libf.ac.uk. Yeah.